0: to Common Threads, produced by Artifacts, the podcast that brings tailors together through open and authentic conversation. We post new episodes periodically, talking with tailors, merchants, and other businesses that make up the sartorial world. Make sure to visit our website at discoverartifacts.com and to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Enjoy the show,
1: Obviously, I want to thank you for doing this with me I really appreciate that not everybody's willing to talk and, and share their story or share anything about tailing or even their opinion so I yeah. appreciate that
2: no no my pleasure my pleasure it's it's always good to see that listen to the different perspectives of the people that work in the industry because it's I feel like it's very um, very varied so it's nice to yeah. get an opinion from everyone
1: yeah it definitely is varied yeah so where did you're American and I'm going to say that I know you are yeah, <laughs> um, I'm going to steal yeah. your thunder there and, and, and say that you're American. Cool. Uh, where did you really start getting interested in textiles, fashion? Like, how did you, did you go to high school in America or, or where did you start?
2: Uh, so I, I grew up in, I grew up in New York until I was about 11, 11 years old. I mean, mostly until then it was, was all soccer more than anything. Um, textiles, fashion. Tailoring didn't really come into the picture. My, my mom was a was a pattern cutter, so obviously she was you know she was she was uh, quite busy with all that. But I mean, I guess it did start at a young age when my, my brother and I were like eight years old. My dad was traveling for business. My my mom was um, kind of preparing the fashion weeks in New York and all that. So after school, we'd we'd um, uh, yeah we'd go to her to her office, basically her, her cutting table, and we'd do our, our math homework on there. Um, so I guess we were always in that kind of environment, but the actual interest in myself being part of that world wasn't until much, much later. Um, but yeah, then middle school and high school was in Spain. We moved uh, when we were 11. And, and yeah, that's kind of when things started to, when I started becoming a bit more interested in, in clothing and tailoring and all that. And so what was the interest with soccer? Um, what, what's so- the
1: story with soccer? I feel like it's pr- a pretty important part of your life
2: yeah yeah no no for sure i mean yeah i started when i was seven years old and yeah i kind of quickly got really into it it was practice literally every day um got super super passionate about it i was i was a goalkeeper um and yeah little by little started playing more and more travel team etc etc and then we started doing these regional camps these national camps and all that so then things started getting started going pretty well and then Started to play with the under the under fourteen U.S. national team. So being able to to travel with them and play against a few other countries, a few tournaments, it it was really full on. Like my basically my passion. Um, Then when we moved to to Spain, when we were when I well when I was eleven, then I started then playing with uh, with Atletico Madrid's um, academy there, Um, and it's still kind of. On and off with the U.S. national team, they kind of fly me into to play some tournaments in the U.S. and in Mexico and all that. But yeah, then then um, yeah, little by little, I just we had her my mom's studio was the upstairs in our in our house in in Madrid. So I was kind of curious of what she was what she was doing up there. She had some fashion students that were there on weekends, so I just joined one one um, Saturday, like oh, I'd like to make you know a, a t-shirt, some jeans, simple stuff. And um, yeah, my mom was like, "Yep, yeah, if you want to do that, you've got to learn pattern making, basically." So um, she taught me all the all the basics and yeah, kind of kind of the fundamentals to be able to understand um, what what went behind making clothes, not just like you know getting on a machine and and just kind of doing whatever you feel was right. So doing it properly and doing it with the right seam allowances, cutting on the grain, uh, what bias meant, all those all those things. And then I just started doing some alterations on my. My soccer jerseys, soccer training uh, uniforms for my for my um, teammates as well, and yeah, I kind of just progressed from there.
1: That's pretty incredible, though. So saying that you were very involved in soccer seems like a bit of an understatement, because um, <laughs> it, it's when you get to that level, right? I mean, the U.S. national team, you're it's it's a job, and I don't want to say I'm not trying to say job with like a negative connotation, but it's a full time mm. sort of commitment.
2: Yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah, it's, you're literally training every day. And then when, when I was in, in, um, in Spain, if I was playing on Saturday, then, uh, they needed a goalie on Sunday. I'd, I'd go on Sunday as well. And it was literally training every day. And then you had your preseason. So, you know, you were limited to a few weeks in summer and you had to get back at it to get your, um, yeah, get the, get the ball rolling again. And yeah, it was, it was definitely a a full-time, full-time thing and the i did like it in in spain because it was much more much more technical i guess so you were really working on precise footwork um you know uh, more technique driven yeah definitely yeah yeah so the way that you dove the way that you kicked the ball the different ways that you could you know spin the ball so that it gave a certain effect so that the player could receive it in a way that was you know better for that situation in the game yeah just really small things but i enjoyed enjoyed a lot Honestly, I didn't enjoy playing uh, playing full games as much as I did like training. So really working on the on the technical aspects and all that. But yeah, it was it was definitely a a big part of of my life. And then I went back to the to the U.S. to to Boston to play um, to play D one. Uh, so again, full time uh, soccer every day, and um, yeah, it was a different style of play there, uh, much more physical and being a goalkeeper that was, you know, I uh, was shorter and skinnier than all the other, the other guys in the U S it was, it was a bit, uh, difficult, but you know, I had kind of, you had to balance out with, with what you had really. So yeah, it was. So you balanced it out with
1: technique, presumably, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Like quick feed, um, reactions and, um, yeah, it was, it was, it was about trying to play your, your, your specialties that other people maybe didn't have. So it was definitely an experience. A uh, learning experience, but it also allowed me to um, continue my interest in fashion and tailoring at that time because I had a sewing machine in my dorm room. And again, the uniforms were coming out even larger in the U.S. than in than in Spain. So um, I was taking in my you know those gray typical sweatpants, yeah. right? Um, they were huge on me, so I just started to taper them a little bit, taking the waist. And then all my teammates were like, "Oh, like how'd you how how did those?" Why do they look like that? They look they look super nice, and I was like, oh no no no, just like give me give me your give me yours and I'll and I'll do it for you, and then soon enough I had like a pile of you know 10, 10 gray sweatpants on my table just um, hopefully uh, I'll clean doing sweatpants alterations, yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah hopefully yeah, <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah that was that was kind of the the start of it. And my coach found out. He was like, oh yeah, um, you know I used to have a a player on the team who. Now has his own like bespoke shop in New York. You should go check it out once you're, um, you know, if you're around the city. And um, it was Kirk Miller's shop and Derek Miller's shop, uh, Miller's Oath. And basically, yeah, I just, I went out there and I'd never really had a particular interest in tailoring, but it was kind of a, a way a, a some kind of tailoring that I, that I was, that I really liked, that I thought was kind of new, that wasn't just those boring boxy suits. So I was like, oh, that's, that's kind of cool. And one summer I just started interning there and discovered a whole whole new world of you know precision of history of of culture and all that so i was like wow this is this is amazing like just one centimeter makes a huge difference and knowing you know this whole craft that goes behind it was really eye-opening and i was like you know what i'm kind of i'm kind of into it i'm gonna keep exploring it see where it goes and um that was kind of my real first entrance into the world of tailoring i was about maybe uh Maybe yeah, nineteen, twenty, around there.
1: And that, you said that's an in, that was an internship at Miller's Oath.
2: Yep, yeah, yeah. It was a summer internship for like a month, a month or two, and yeah, because we had preseason, so I had to go back, so it couldn't be it couldn't be that long. But yeah, then I kind of kept in touch, and then uh, little by little, I was kind of becoming a bit less interested in in soccer, just because again, like the style of play wasn't really suited for me it was much more you know waking up at five in the morning going to the gym uh, more so than than playing I mean not to say anything bad about the team or anything because it was a, a great experience but it just wasn't what I was interested in at the time so I just started looking at other things you know going to, to galleries to museums and just kind well, of...
1: and that's also interesting because you said when you were in Spain mm-hmm. you actually didn't like to play it and you like to f- focus on the technique right yeah you actually yeah, preferred I mean, not playing and then and then in the, you yeah. came back to the US and everything's about I don't know maybe it's about more strength training and and lifting weights and less about the actual technique in the play
2: yeah yeah there you go yeah I mean it, it kind of does sound weird that you know you uh you play soccer for such a long time you don't you don't like to play I mean I did I obviously did like to play because I was doing it for such a long time but I just preferred certain certain things over others and um and yeah kind of the fact that Everything was a bit drifting away from the from the technique, the quick feet, the the reactions, the the way you position your body, and all that it just made me want to kind of in, explore my other interests that I had. And they, you know, the coach understood perfectly, and and yeah, it was a good it was a good way for me to kind of transition and and look at, at other things. Yeah,
1: that that sounds like it was a perfect transition because I was actually going to ask hearing you tell this story. It's a pretty. It's a pretty cool story you know to have that opportunity to to have the talent and then on top of that have the work ethic to continue developing that talent I think takes a lot and so I was thought you know hearing all that you know you're traveling everywhere flying in for games flying I don't know to Spain I don't know what, what you're doing but going mm-hmm. to all these training training camps and you know walking away from that is a big deal even if it's even if yeah. it's amicable or even if it's you know, like you said, the coach understood, even if he did understand, I I feel like that's a big deal for you. What did you, how was that leaving, leaving something that you was a part of your life from such a young age and such a big part?
2: Yeah, yeah, no, it's true. It was, it was a, I mean, in the moment that you're, you know, you've, you know, you're full of interest and you're, I'm super, I guess, super curious as a, as a person. So it was kind of like jumping around from one to the other. And it was for me at the time, I didn't really, Noticed it that much. I was just kind of following what I thought was what I thought was right. What I felt I was more interested in. What I was putting more time and en- energy to. So so yeah. I mean, it was it was a big change, um. But at the same time, I don't know. I just it it was it was quite a quite an easy easy transition. Just because I already had all this, I guess curiosity and and questions that I had been accumulating. I guess from the past from experiences at Miller's Oath or at other other tailors and just visiting some shops and doing some research and all that. And I was like, oh, this is a whole world out there to continue exploring. So I guess that dedication and time that was put into all the practice and soccer and all that um, was just that energy was going to another, another place, right? So it didn't really feel like it was an abrupt stop or close. It was just kind of a continuation, I guess.
1: Yeah, sort of an energy follows thought type of type of deal. Yeah. Your mind was drifting that direction. Maybe not drifting, but going in that yeah. direction.
2: And... Yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah, I was definitely drifting at some points, but yeah, 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 definitely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: Very cool. So what happened, what happened next? So you had that internship at Miller's Oath, you got to know the mm-hmm. guys there, and then yeah. where, how did you continue?
2: Um, after that, the summer after that one, I um, I actually did another internship at Paul Stewart, also in, in New York, and it was a very different style. Miller's was very much like a f- family owned, super casual kind of vibe. And then a poster was a bit more, you know, a bit more corporate, a bit more, I wouldn't say rigid, but there were other other things that you were learning um, in an environment like that. So, um, yeah, I guess in about addition, how to... you were learning other things
1: in addition to what you were learning before or other things like different things.
2: Um, I'd I'd probably say I'd probably say both. Um, I mean, I was able to to really see. I was within the made to measure and and bespoke department, so we were kind of there supervising how the head of bespoke tailoring was fitting the clients and um, how he was dressing them, the way that um, that he spoke because it was it was a bit of a more formal attitude. So you had to kind of it was a bit of the the, the sort of education that was like how to, um, yeah, how to dress people, how to conduct a fitting in a certain order so that it made sense for the client. Um, So it's kind of already thinking about the perspective from the client's point of view. And um, also small things like, um, I remember Paolo, he was there at the time and he was telling us what kind of colors and patterns and shirts would match with different compositions of faces. So like, whether you have more tone skin, darker skin, lighter skin, orange hair, black hair, brown hair, lighter brown hair. So kind of thinking about um, color variations and picking up on more subtle subtle notes that might um, complement the client. And
1: so uh, who's who's teaching? This was Paolo, I think his last name's Moritano, What is it?
2: Yeah, Paolo Martirano. Martirano. Yeah. Okay. So it was him and and Mark Ricken that were there at the at the custom department. And basically, yeah, I was the. It was the two of them taking taking orders, and and I was there, kind of helping out however I could, whether it was preparing it for the, you know, for the buttonholes or just kind of getting some operations done in, in the shop, uh, running around a bit. Um, it was just kind of more about the experience of seeing how a business like that worked, more than the actual craft behind it.
1: That's interesting. It sounds like kind of, you know, one of the things that I had, was interested in talking to you about was. Uh, the difference of tailoring across cultures and in, in Europe and the U S and it seems like in New York I'm well, and I don't want to put words in your mouth or anything. I obviously want to know what you have to say, but it seems like um, there's sort of this almost like the Alan Flusser model. So you'll have, hmm. and I don't mean that in a negative way either. I just mean you have those stylists, tailors, fitters. I'm not sure what you want to call them. Um, Who are really focused on the client, like they're they're any need that the client has, whether they know that need or not, they're really focused on that. Just like what you're saying with like the skin tone, the hair color, all of that sort of thing, they zero in on those details. Is that something that you've kind of noticed?
2: Um, Yeah, I'd say yeah, I'd say so. I mean, I mean, I don't think I noticed that before before that experience. um, To be honest, I hadn't really thought about it, but it did start to. To make sense uh, i mean you start noticing starting to, to look at colors a bit more a bit more in depth whether you know if it's for a shirt for a guy or whether it's you know in a museum or something you're looking at a painting or something and seeing why does that make sense you know and you're seeing the color combinations and um, kind of contrast or tones or um, whatever it is and kind of little insights like that makes you make you think um, a bit more about things in general For me, it was a great experience. And I thought that was, that was probably one of the things I took away most from that experience. I mean, you don't want to force it either, like saying like, these are the rules and you have to stick to them. But you know, using that as a base, and then maybe, you know, playing off of that, or or at least referencing it every now and then.
1: Yeah, well, and then also knowing the rules, so you know how to break them too. I feel like that's a whole nother side of things. Once you know them, and you have that framework, you can kind of expand upon it exactly like you're saying yeah
2: yeah so in a way that was that was like that foundational education at Paul Stewart and then after that you know um after that I went back to well I was I was studying at BU at the time and then I I graduated and then I um I thought that Taylor was it wasn't it wasn't boring but I was getting just a bit you know, it was, it was a bit, a bit um, muted, Yeah, maybe a bit, a bit slow. Yeah. Okay. So I was like, you know what, maybe, maybe it's time to, to try something else. Um, I'd done, I'd done an internship before all of these, um, all this tailoring with, uh, within Haute Couture House in New York. So I was like, you know what, maybe I'll, maybe go back to women's wear, see how I like it. Um. So I first, spe- I first graduated and went to work as an assistant designer and kind of production manager in in a women's wear brand kind of doing it's like it was all kind of high-end stuff very simple silhouettes really nice um kind of flowy breezy kind of stuff with really nice silks and taffetas and all that um and it, we were a small team so i really got basically i was changing all the patterns from one season to the other i was i mean not the base patterns, but kind of altering them so that we had new styles trying out different uh, fabrics coordinating with the with the seamstresses with the kind of head designer um, assisting fittings and all that so it was really super super eye-opening as well and I, I liked it a lot but it was just a bit it was that was the opposite it was extremely intense where you're just literally not not breathing so after a while I was just like this is this is uh, a bit too much um, so then I kind of went back to um, went back to tailoring. Um, at Miller's Oath, kind of working a bit more full-time there, um, getting a bit more hands-on, assisting the in-shop tailor, kind of working with the tailors um, in and around New York and doing client fittings and and all that stuff, getting a bit deeper into the tailoring world. Do you think college was important for you? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I studied studied something that was not extremely related. Um, I studied first business thinking that, you know, maybe there's some sort of you know business of fashion or something maybe there's you know there's something that i like there and then soon two or three months later i was like no this is definitely not uh not for me uh numbers is not well numbers the way that they were presenting was not my my forte um so then i was like you know what i want to do something a bit more creative so i then went into advertising um, and that was was a nice balance between the creative side so the art direction and graphic design and all that and the strategy which was i guess you know, a bit more business focused. And, and what I did, I did learn, I did learn that in advertising, um, you kind of try to, you try to dive a bit deeper into what you're selling. So what you're advertising. So looking at the product and seeing what added benefits it can add to the public. So you're kind of looking at not what physically a product can do, but also what, how it can make someone feel or how it can make someone think about certain things or make them change um, maybe how they yeah how they how they see certain things so in that respect it also kind of made me think also this idea of what's what can a kind of product bring a client and kind of just shifting that from you know maybe it's just a coca-cola advert to to a suit right what can a suit bring to a client and how can you make it that extra extra bit so i mean there there were there were over, it was it was different but there were overlaps that now in retrospect I'm like, okay, that kind of makes sense.
1: Overlaps between advertising and what you're doing now.
2: Yeah, yeah, fu- yeah, 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 definitely enough. But I think, I think, I think so, yeah. Yeah. Well, no, that's really interesting
1: that you have that background because, and I was just having a conversa- conversation the other day with someone. I wonder if people, tailors, owners of tailor shops, or, you know, there's a whole spectrum of kind of different, very various types of tailors made to measure or whatever. You know, there's a whole spectrum but oftentimes i wonder if in the more artisanal world and in europe primarily i guess europe in the uk if people actually think about that if the owners who are selling a suit think about Mm. what does this suit offer to our customer and do they value that
2: yeah i mean i don't know i guess i guess everyone has their has their perspective as you know as to what they're what they're making and and selling but i don't know i i do feel that when it does come to more artisanal products in general, I guess there's, there's a whole soul that goes into it, you know, behind just the product, you know, there's a lot of hands and work and time and, and effort put into it. Um, so even though it's not physically tangible, it's maybe something that the client might feel, might not feel, but maybe, I don't know, it's something to, uh, to think about with, with clothes and with products that are made so, so precisely. And with ages, I mean, with years and years, um, behind the artisan's practice, basically. Do you think people?
1: Do you think tailors market themselves and advertise their businesses well?
2: Um, I mean, I guess I don't know. I, I feel like it's. Um,
1: I could also ask you more generally: How do you think advertising manifests itself in the tailoring world, or or if it does or not?
2: I don't know. I think it's. I think it's. A tr- it's a tricky one. Um, there are a lot of these old school tailors, right? That are you know that have a website that made a really long time ago that they don't even bother (laughs) to to change it which is fine you know they if you want to concentrate on you know on the product and everything that's that's perfectly fine i mean there are others that that do um that i think do a do a a really a really nice job it's a kind of a more contemporary look on on tailoring which is which is nice which is i think much much needed there are some that are kind of half and half um some concentrating I, i guess more on on the on the craft itself, um, and not trying to be too too, marketing. I guess right. You know because then you get lost in in all this sea of um, I guess ready to wear and made to measure Instagram stuff out there. So you know in some way I guess sometimes less is more. But at the same time, if you're not really getting yourself out there, then you know it's easy. I guess to to um, to be forgotten. I don't know. Um, it's I think it's a tricky one, especially with a, tr- a trade that's like so concentrated on subtle details. And it's very nuanced. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, And I guess it also depends on the person behind the, the brand or the, or the house or the tailor. Um, everyone has their own style. So it's, it's up to them to to communicate the way that they feel is most authentic to to their um, house style, I guess. Yeah. How,
1: how do you see the value of advertising? And we can also talk about marketing, I guess, as well of tailored and artisanal products, because like you are saying, it can get, things might get misconstrued or, or owners might not want to be seen as a made-to-measure offering or ready-to-wear offering. And so they might not use a certain type of copy to present their product to their customer. I guess it depends all on the business goals, but for you, coming from an advertising background, or at least having an education in it, do you see value in that? In in sort of, I don't want to call it the fluff, but you know, writing good copy is there. There is there a real value to the client in in having good copy.
2: For a trade like like bespoke tailoring, a lot I mean, a lot is is about return customers, I guess, and relationships that you build with clients that you already have. Um, I mean, it's also about getting getting new clients, but I think a lot of houses do value really having a strong relationship with their with their good clients, but when it does come to kind of attracting new clients, I guess, it, yeah, a good copy does go a long way because sometimes you're giving insight into what some, somebody doesn't really think would be valuable in a suit, maybe, um, or just like an outlook on, on dressing or a or product itself. So, um, so in a way, it's, I guess it's just about communicating a philosophy. In When was it? A few, a few years ago with a friend, we started a, a company that was called Sartorial Trips. And that was kind of the aim was to help these tailors that had these kind of older websites, but that were like really niche, but had really special, special product, mostly in the shoemaking and bespoke tailoring world, um, was to kind of bring them into the digital sphere. So um, trying to expand their markets to new cities that maybe they didn't know there was a demand for their product or there were people that, that really did like their product. Um, so what we did is that we kind of set up a, a voting page on on a website and basically somebody could go on the website and vote for a certain artisan to go to their to their city so they just basically choose their shoemaker and select their city um, and then after they were like X amount of votes say like 10 10 votes from different people from the same city then we kind of get in touch with the tailor with a shoemaker and just say look there are 10 people that are interested in in you going to their city to do a to do a trunk show. So, you know, we then kind of talk about terms to see if maybe if 10 was enough, maybe, you know, they wanted a bit more to be sure. And um, and then we kind of start to talk about organizing a trunk show in that city. And some tailors were super, super forward because they didn't really know. They'd never really gone to that city. And all of a sudden they were like, okay, that could be an interesting um, path for, for our business. So um, we kind of ended up, hosting a few trunk shows and mostly in, in, uh, in Paris and San Francisco, um, did one in, in New York as well. And yeah, just kind of helped, helped out these, these small artisans look at, look at other opportunities through, through the internet, through technology. So it was trying to use the best of both worlds, you know, not, not try to, you know, sell their suits online, but rather kind of yeah help help them expand to new markets while them keeping their integrity of their products basically
1: that's a beautiful idea it really is i mean i'm kind of <laughs> jealous that you got <laughs> that you had the the chance and and the and the perseverance to carry it out what what was sort of the biggest roadblock or what were some of some of the roadblocks doesn't have to be the biggest in developing sartorial trips working with tailors um, yeah, because if we're working I mean, in Europe, right? These are, are were the European tailors, or what was the primary?
2: Uh, most, yeah, most of them were. There were a good amounts of tailors in um, in France and Italy. Um, yeah, mostly European tailors. We had a few, a few, a few U.S. based tailors, but um, but yeah, I mean, it was it was quite tricky. I mean, every it was everything was done online, so it was it was fine, and we were we were able to travel and meet them, and that was actually one of the biggest highlights is that we would meet these artisans that were really honing their craft and they were really super nice people they were super happy to show us what they what they're working on there was um you know zero pretension behind it they were extremely extremely um welcoming and um yeah it was kind of a nice feeling to know that there were yeah there was such a warmth behind uh behind an industry um like tailoring and, and shoemaking um but yeah one of the biggest challenges of course was like well yeah it's, i guess it's a it's a business right you've got to make some sort of money to be able to keep on growing to help these artisans keep on finding new opportunities so that was definitely a a tricky part
1: coming up with like a, a monetization model that was
2: yeah a business model that yeah everyone was happy with you know both from our side and the the company side of course because it started more as a as a passion project you know kind of helping these artisans you know find new clients around the world but of course yeah you kind of have to have to be somewhat lucrative in in one way or another so you can keep on doing it right you have got website costs you've got um, travel costs and to be able to really grow a business the way you want it to, to grow then you know you've got to you've got to find ways but of course the trunk show industry it was still quite you know it wasn't niche but you know there were tailors that did it every year and everything but i mean some some brands used to would just go see certain clients. Others had some that were through personal contacts. So it was uh, it was a bit tricky, but um, but again, it was it was a great experience that really um, I was able to meet some amazing tailors and see their work firsthand. So yeah, beautiful experience.
0: Like what you hear so far? Make sure you never miss a show by subscribing now. If you have any thoughts or comments please feel free to share them with us on Instagram, Facebook, or directly on our website at discoverartifacts.com. Now, back to the show. When did you see that you guys had the best results?
1: What were the sort of conditions for, like, let's say you're working with one tailor, specific tailor, I don't know who it could be, but just one specific tailor, and they have 10 votes on on your website for them to come to... Paris. Right. How did that actually happen in real life? Like what was the end result and what what factors contributed to a really good interaction for both the tailor, you guys, and the, these these customers?
2: Yeah, I mean, one of one of the something that helped us a lot was at some point we um we collaborated with Parisian gentleman, which was a, a yeah, like an a, a, a website by Hugo Jacome, and he has a really big um, Kind of readership in in France, and he was really interested in the project. Thought it was it was a nice idea. Um, So we said, you know what? Yeah, he'll write a few, um, you know, maybe a few a few articles about certain trunks, about certain brands. Talk about the idea, and um, we had quite a lot of quite a lot of visitors. And when we did see that he did share that there were some brands that were you know two votes away from. Um, from a trunk show in Paris, for example, you know he'd he'd give a little push, and you know we'd get a few more a few more voters and stuff. So that really that really did help us, but it kind of maintaining that exposure, you know, we didn't have the biggest network of uh, let's say bespoke tailoring clients. So you know in that re- respects we were quite limited. We were trying you know pushing it through Facebook and Instagram and all these channels, but you know at some point you do need some sort of a uh, personal network that you can expand and that was kind of our yeah we were it was difficult for us to to get to get past that um, and in some cases we did you know we we did get some some new clients and it was it was great but yeah i mean a lot of organization did have to go behind actually getting these trunk shows um to go if there were you know 10 votes or something we did have to rent out you know get a get a space in that city um, make sure that everything was good if if Lucas was around that city, who was you know my business partner, he would go and try to be physically at the trunk show um, and then help out with any sort of logistics and and all that. So um, so yeah, we were kind of hands on as much as we could because we were also. I mean, I think I was I was in New York at the time, and then just moving to to London, and then Lucas was more based in. Uh, I think he was yeah between paris and, and london so just trying to find out logistics and and uh getting that to work was yeah it was it was a challenge but again uh we did kind of the the best the best we could with what we had definitely
1: that's that's so interesting and especially the network part you know you, you talked about how important that network was almost like it's like having a black book of clients right like when a salesperson works for for uh any made-to-measure brand or something, they maybe they build their list, their client list, and then, and then after twenty years, you know that person is super important. They're the they they are the contact person between the client and the business, and so building that network is extremely important. Also, the network with the tailors, right? Yeah, like get, I mean, honestly, getting to yeah, talk honestly, to them, what was that like? Yeah.
2: Yeah, I mean that was that was honestly the part that I was I was more interested in. I mean, at some sometimes it was kind of frustrating because you had this really amazing like shirt maker, for example, and you're like, oh wow, like um, from Spain, who's doing some amazing, beautiful handwork and everything. But you know, we wanted to bring them to London, but then there weren't you know, in, there wasn't enough demand to be able to get that trunk show going. And it was a bit sad sometimes. We're like, oh man, this is such a special product, but we're just not getting that exposure that we'd like to get to be able to bring this. Um, this artisan there, um, so yeah, sometimes it was it was quite frustrating. Um, answering your your other question with yeah the the relationship with these with these artisans and tailors was was really really amazing because partly I had kind of grown up seeing the craft part with my mother and everything, and I'd already worked with a few tailoring houses and everything. So yeah, it was it was somewhat it was it was kind of familiar. Um, but then I was also learning a ton of new things too, and they kind of knew that we wanted to help them as well. So it was it was kind of this honest um, relationship where we were like, okay, you know, we're trying to help you, um, and we'll try to help each other the best the best we can. So I kind of we went away with it with some really great, um, some some great new new friends, really.
1: Yeah, definitely. You know, you'd mentioned a shirt maker in in Spain, and it's like we just don't have the the push. To get them into London and to have a successful trunk show and that sort of thing, how does brand play into the product that people are selling? Because you, like you said, you have this—you might have a fantastic shirt maker from wherever you know it could be could be from Naples. There's a million shirt makers in the south of Italy that are incredibly talented and in, in create an incredible product. But a lot of the times, even just for things like language barrier, mm. they don't have the exposure. And they're not willing to work with other people outside of Italy yeah. or, you know, how does brand play into the success of a brand in a tailoring house?
2: Yeah, for sure. I mean, the the, the language part that you mentioned is like, yeah, that, yeah, that was one of the one of the points that we always made clear with the tailor. Because between Lucas and I, we spoke French, English, and, and Spanish. So we could help the tailors in different parts um, of the world with with different languages. Obviously, not, we don't know all every single language but you know it at least helped to to bridge this communication barrier which at times there were but yeah in terms of, of branding it is it is important to kind of keep up to date this the spanish shirt maker was was really old school like you go in their shop in madrid and it was you know they they did the they did a lot of shirts for like the toreros the uh the bullfighters and you know super super cool shop but it was like really you could the wood the wood is like is proper old you know and you're like okay this is I, we like the charm is there definitely but branding does have an important role because if if you um i guess if you if you do want to play that card and be that really old school tailor then you kind of play it to your advantage whereas for them it was kind of just normal you know they were just kind of still going how they had been going for the past 80 years but at some point there has to be some sort of um, adaptation I guess to new markets and yes okay you get on Instagram and you start posting pictures yeah that's fine but I think yeah maybe there's there's this extra branding push that has to be done in order to to cater to a yeah to a younger to a younger client that was part of our idea with Sartorial trip was that was to be able to expand the market to these two younger um to a younger demographic who you know that's growing that that wants that wants nice things that wants things that are well made that are made by hand so we saw some some sort of potential there but uh but yeah behind that there has to be you know a legit website There has to be you know some some branding behind it some um something that will that will attract the attention of a younger generation and it it wasn't always the easiest thing to find and for each brand it's different right based on their history and how they want to communicate and what they want to say about their brand. Maybe they just want to stay old, you know, stay old school. But at the same time, you know, some were really open to to change and to doing, you know, taking new, taking pictures, sending us, you know, some more modern pictures and see how it plays out. Maybe um, you know it'll it'll change the way they're they're viewed and everything. So it was a nice it was a nice collaborative project. But of course, with with many of the questions of how can we actually you know turn this exposure and turn this into you know into sales for them because that's kind of what exactly that's what their um end goal is and and also not only just getting one client through the door but getting a client that will keep coming back you know for for the next 10 years years you know creating these relationships and through the internet it's not always the the best way sometimes word of mouth is the way that those things happen so that was another limitation Uh, it was a plus and and a minus i guess at the same time but that kind of did Open our eyes to the to the challenges of a traditional, kind of quote unquote old school craft in, craft industry like like tailoring.
1: Definitely, we we kind of got off on sartorial trips, which is a great topic. I want to go back a little bit to kind of you were out of college. To your, to your personal story, right? Um, you were out of college, and you said things were a bit slow in tailoring. What do you mean by the tailoring things? it was slow what does that mean
2: i wouldn't say that it was slow but it was maybe the there was a part of creativity that wasn't that wasn't there for me maybe um i don't know if it's if whether it was in you know the experimenting with pattern making better experimenting with cutting and you know in tailoring you kind of have the way that i guess men men dress in tailoring is that you've got this And the point of bespoke tailoring is you've got this great block, right? You've got this pattern that's developed just for you. And then you kind of tweak it with maybe, you know, a soft shoulder, a more structured shoulder, you convert that into a coat, you know, you make a vest out of it and you can, you can play around with that, but that it's still quite, quite traditional, right? It's quite, it's, the suit hasn't varied very much. So I was kind of interested also in, you know, experimenting with, with other things, trying, trying new yeah, new silhouettes, um, new details, trying to explore, yeah, also also different kinds of, of fabric too. And then I'd kind of noticed that in each tailoring house you end up seeing the same fabric books, right? And I was like, oh well, okay, that's that's kind of I mean, yeah, you can go to one for their house style and to the other to the other because you just prefer the person there, right? Um, and that's fine. But um, after a while it's kind of like, well, what you know, what can you do to to maybe make things a bit a bit different? And in mean, women's wear of course i mean that's kind of the the opposite women shop extremely differently what when they wear something it's it's about how they feel it's about proportions about silhouette it's about how they're seen by the public as well there's a lot of different elements that go into it that aren't as you know it's it's not one centimeter that's going to make a change maybe it's a it's it's much more maybe it's it's sleeves and maybe it's no sleeves maybe it's you know 10 centimeters maybe it's just a different kind of fabric in the same patterns so it's it's more about experimenting and it's about more feeling i guess and then with tailoring i guess it it was much more not mathematical but much more precise right you kind of can go down the rabbit hole of like oh like that sleeve length is just like it's a quarter inch off which you know it's good to see (laughs) but at the same time you're like okay you know maybe there's something that's you know a bit more creatively uh, stimulating than that and it's it's not only it's not only in women's wear but you know it's it's just i guess thinking more broadly how do you think a creative
1: tailoring house would exist today?
2: I think probably integrating a ton of different ideas, methodologies, techniques from other industries. Um, so kind of meshing different, yeah, different crafts, different approaches. Um, whether it's through cut, whether it's through making, whether it's through fabrics, whether it's through even like branding and marketing, or you know the concept behind a tailor or something so I think it has to do with yeah bringing in bringing in elements from different industries Um, I mean I don't know exactly what 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 the definition would be but maybe that's a starting point you know trying to trying to experiment with different ways of of doing things and um, of course there's an overall aesthetic and there's there's a liking and you know that's that that a certain house has but I don't know I think maybe that's that's a good starting point would you maybe put a little bit more
1: influence from the fashion industry? I know I've spoken with tailors and and saying fashion in a tailoring house sometimes, I don't know, You, it seems like somebody's going to hit you in the head with an iron. <laughs> you think like, you know, there are trends, you know, even yeah. in menswear, you mm. know, trousers get wider, trousers get slimmer, but there's still trends. So, you know, I personally wouldn't say that you can completely ignore fashion because the consumer the client wants to be viewed in a certain way and that coincides that that way they want to be viewed has to match to some degree with with fashion and current trends
2: yeah yeah for sure i mean like you said there's there's definitely you know i guess micro trends within William taylor that are maybe not as as visible as (laughs) the trends on the runway um every you know every season but um but it's true that you know i guess People want to to be able to, you know, be part of society. I guess wear clothing that is somewhat that is relevant. I guess within their within their their environment. So I guess that plays a a role as well, depending on what your work is or or yeah, who you who you're surrounded by and what your interests are. Um, that has a lot to do with with the personal, I guess, um, interaction between a tailor and the, and the client as well. So sometimes. We saw it at Miller's Oath, for example, that there were some some guys that would come in and were like, you know what, I really love a really nice tailored suit, but you know, if I wear that, like, I don't know, I'd feel super out of place. So it was kind of about developing maybe new jackets, slightly, you know, maybe a bit a bit cropped, a bit asymmetric, trying trying a few little different things that was within you know what what we could do, but still being open minded as to what the word bespoke meant, right? It doesn't necessarily have to be a, a three piece suit. What does the word bespoke mean? Um, bespoke, I mean, it's, yeah, it's made for, I guess, I mean, I'm sure some people know the exact definition, <laughs> but I think I, honestly, it's... Honestly, I couldn't tell you the exact, the exact definition. I don't know what the exact definition is. I but... guess it's, yeah, made by, made for, made for somebody, right? So, so yeah, in that, in that regard, I guess it's just over time, it's been associated with tailoring because I don't know, to be honest, I don't know the, the whole history of tailoring, but yeah. Um, but well, it gets... has a pretty rich history in,
1: in the UK, the word bespoke, but I was curious to ask you, because of the usage of bespoke today, like you can get bespoke coffee. You can get, it's almost like that yeah. word is, has been plastered everywhere. For sure. And especially when you get into more of the marketing and advertising, you have people who are maybe poorly doing that. And right. so they kind of throw the word bespoke or sartorial or these kind of uh i don't know what you would call them kind of buzzwords a little bit right to attract attention to a product that might not necessarily represent that
2: yeah yeah i mean yes it's it's done yeah of course there's a whole dilemma of you know using bespoke for something that's not completely handmade and you know made to measure for things that are ready to wear Blah blah. blah. i mean that's i don't know um would you maybe incorporate more your
1: definition would be a little bit more inclusive to incorporate more sort of wiggle room in terms of the end garment.
2: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I mean, I think, yeah, I think the word bespoke would be, yeah, it's it's more about personalizing something for a person. And yes, of course, with great, you know, skill and handcraft behind it, but yeah, it doesn't necessarily mean, you know, some things have to be done by machine as well. You know, it's not like you've got to limit yourself just to, just a hand, handmade thing because, at the end of the day, there are some complicated seams and things that might, you know, that might go outside of the, out of the the realm of bespoke tailoring, but that could still be, you know, really functional and really cool as well.
1: Well, yeah. And then I, now what's coming to mind is your mother and sort of your familiarity with uh, haute couture houses. It's like, so what do you do in haute couture house? Because that in theory is, is like the pinnacle of garment construction and make And design and pattern making right so how would you kind of uh, bring that into the conversation with the word bespoke and what that means and handmade and machine and all that
2: yeah no I mean haute couture is 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 basically bespoke but for for women's Um, so it's really sculpting around the body and it does have to do a lot with yeah different seams and pleats and um, different layers of fabrics and um, it has this luxurious connotation to it as well. but but yeah, I mean, you have houses today that um, that are completely blending um, the tailoring side of the of the of the house with the more flu, the more draping um, side of it because they want to create some um, some some hybrids of of the two worlds. and there are some that still kind of keep it keep it separate, you know, they want the uh, the people that are best at what they do. And then of course, you know, they, they alter and two a gate with the head designers and everything, but that's, I think where things can get interesting, you know, where, when you're blending again, these, these two different fields within an industry that are very different in approach to in construction and in, and in cutting and seeing where, where they can come together. And of course it's extremely difficult because you need, um, the expertise from, from each side and the open-mindedness to be able to, you know, add or take away from, certain parts of, of each, of each quote unquote department. But yeah, I mean, you think of, of, uh, of guys like Heider Ackerman or and and, um, Dries Van Notten and, and these guys, and there's, there's some interesting things there, you know, that, that you can integrate and that can be considered bespoke, right? I mean, I think it's, it's just not about limiting yourself to, to too much, um, and keeping an, an open mind. So you said, you know, like auto is
1: basically bespoke for women. Yeah, uh, I kind of view that industry, the haute couture industry for women, as almost being subsidized by the ready-to-wear. You know, not everybody's buying an haute couture dress. They're not. Mm-hmm. You don't have thousands and thousands and thousands of clients to buy those pieces that are sold as works of art, quite literally. So, how do you think now bringing that into menswear? It's like, well, you just have outcouture part for for a lot of brands and then right. nowadays you'll see tailors who are who are fortunate enough and and cunning enough to to have a successful quote-unquote outcouture brand for men they will bring out a ready-to-wear line or they'll bring out a made-to-measure line to kind of fill out the whole brand um uh, i'm just curious what you think about that because they're in women's wear they they have they can sell ready-to-wear they so they have a revenue model Exactly. that's going to support the art and the creative and and it kind of goes in a circle you know they that supports the right where the right supports that and it exactly. keeps going on and on
2: yeah exactly yeah. so i mean that's that's i mean historically that's kind of how it's worked right you know you have you have the the whole the dreams and the fantasies on the on the runway which is the haute couture um show right um and then you have the like you said the the ready to wear or the perfumes or the sunglasses to kind of help fund the creativity behind it. So you look at consumers, right? And yeah, they're, they're, they're buying, you know, sunglasses from this particular brand. Right. But it's, it's, uh, it's so that they can be part of that, you know, quote unquote fantasy that they're putting on the runway. So there's, there's this kind of, I guess, partly a support for the creativity behind that brand by, you know, getting this bag or these sunglasses or you're in line with the philosophy of the brand right um so and and it's i guess it is very different from bespoke tailoring because yes there could be there's ready to wear within the the tailoring industry and there's bespoke tailors that have that do have ready to wear but in a way it'd be interesting to see if they could you know be be a bit similar to that cultural um mentality of using their bespoke line as that creative outlet right of trying to experiment with you know different different cuts and with their craftsmanship see where they can what's the next level they can take it to and maybe yeah i don't know maybe it's it's something that we might we might see in the future we might not but i think it's something that's definitely interesting to to think about maybe for
1: for uh the future of tailoring i guess do you think that that idea is a bit controversial or might be in the menswear world again we were talking earlier about trends and and how little menswear actually changes and this is the block of of a suit and that's what it is this is the jacket that's trousers that's your vest that's it right so do you think that might be a little
2: a little oh, no <laughs> for sure okay. no no absolutely i mean def- oh okay. uh, no, no no yeah definitely i mean yeah some people have their ways and that's completely understandable but uh, i think maybe yeah some might think it's it's a waste of time some might think that you know it's it's uh it's a good way of trying to expand your technical know-how your cutting skills as well some might do it just for themselves as well just to see where where it takes them some yeah i mean i think it, it just depends on who on who who takes it if you don't if you don't want to take that road that's completely fine you know it's it's uh, it's up to that person or house to to decide
1: yeah so again i've gotten you off the track of your personal story and your background so i'm gonna i'll bring you back i'll drag you back to that for a second so after going okay. and working in more of women's wear pattern making and, yeah uh, and design where did you go
2: Um, So then I, so after Women's Wear, um, then I went back to to tailoring for a little bit, for two years in in New York, um, back at at Miller's Oath. Um, And that was great. I was doing kind of, I was doing a lot of photography, web development. I was fitting clients. I was running, going to see the tailors, working on alterations. It was, yeah, we were only two, yeah, we were three, three guys at the shop. So it was kind of, you had to, you really had to wear
1: a lot of hats for sure
2: exactly yeah. there you go and uh and then after that i was like okay i've i'm kind of i really like the the craft side behind it right and i'm i'm very interested and I, i'd always been interested in the in the pattern cutting in the making and i'd seen my mom making since i was young and i was like you know what i'm i'm a bit more interested in that side i've done everything except for it kind of leaving the the best for last and i was like you know what um i think i'm gonna yeah i'm gonna go to at to, home if I'm, if I'm gonna do this i'm gonna go to, to london and i'd like to. To learn the the craft, so so then I applied for the this program at the London College of Fashion, the bespoke tailoring course, and and yeah, that that next uh, September I moved to moved to London and started the started the course, which was about now three three years ago. There's a lot of different opinions about the course, but I have to say that I was very lucky to have an amazing tutor the first year who taught us how to make trousers, how to make jackets, and I was kind of hungry to to learn how to make it, so. It was kind of up to you to, to ask the questions and and really learn on your own time as well um, and i was super lucky enough to before even starting the course I um, i popped into to tom sweeney um just because a uh, a friend in common had told me to to go say hi to a, a spanish tailor who's at the bespoke um, department in at tom sweeney so just to you know see how we got there and all that and um we had a we had a nice talk and um he said you know we're actually looking for someone to start, like you know, next week. Um. So I was like, okay, you know, it might be a good way to to see how things work in London. I I mean, I've already done a ton of internships before, but I was like, you know what? It's a new, you know, new environment. Thought I'd I learned the ropes, and it was an amazing experience. I was there for for two years, kind of once or twice a, a week between uh, between my studies and and class and everything. And they were a great group of guys who were really open to answering all my questions whether it was technical or making cutting so yeah that was i was really lucky to, to have that alongside to have kind of a standard of what a professional garment should look like you know
1: so you're kind of getting the technical and practical work done at lcf and then going to tom sweeney and kind of asking questions and getting more of the this is how it, how we do it professionally. and we have clients so this is actually like a way that it's that's that's marketable
2: exactly almost kind of like refining it down to kind of what's the what's the essential right you're taught all these different things and you're like okay this is this is this is useful that's that's useful but then you're seeing what's actually being used like in the industry right so that really um opened my mind to yeah to how how things were were being were being made and um and again the group of guys there were super nice super chill and um they're all quite quite young so it was a, it was a good time
1: what were some of those differences that you did see from lcf to tom sweeney Anything specifically that comes to mind or
2: Yeah, I mean I think it was in at LCF it wasn't maybe it wasn't as in in depth, I guess. They you know, you you have a limited amount of time of hours right per week that you have with the tutor, right? So they're gonna teach you the the skills and sometimes you can't they can't go as in depth into why you're doing certain things, which is quite an important element, right? So why you're doing one way towards the other as opposed to like do it you know, you should be doing it this way and not fully explaining how. But then again, it's it's really up to you to, to then after class, go and ask the tutor, why not do it this way as opposed to that way? And they're like, oh, you know, let me let me get back to you on that. And, you know, it's it's yeah, it's get, it depends. It depends on on the personal experience. But one thing that was great was that they gave me the time and the space to be able to um, to experiment, to make mistakes, to learn, learn by making. And I think that was super important.
1: Yeah. Do you feel like you would have gotten that learned by making experience if you had just tried to get a traditional apprenticeship?
2: I mean, I can't say I can't say firsthand, but I think that it was also really nice because I was I was also able to explore the creative side that you can integrate into tailoring. Um, so if you're doing a proper apprenticeship, you know you're full on with the with the craft and all that. And maybe you don't have as much time to explore, you know, creative ad- avenues that you can integrate into into tailoring. So at least like you know I, I arrived at lcf and we had a there was a dye garden at the Mare street campus in, in east london and that was amazing because i had you know started to be interested in it a few you know a few months before and i was like okay this is a great way i can keep on exploring this this whole world while also studying the craft so that and i, I still do it today so it's kind of been going in parallel and i've been able to to work with one and integrate the other slowly i mean slowly but um, at the same time um, have the space again and the time to do it
1: so you've done a lot of traveling and we already talked about that a little bit how you went from grew up in new york then moved to spain then you're back to new york then i don't even know where now where are you
2: <laughs> now i'm in spain i'm back in spain <laughs> in the south of
1: spain yeah how have you seen uh the cultures that you've been exposed to change you and how they how have they impacted you both linguistically uh, personally and professionally
2: i think um yeah i think i think personally i mean each each language whenever you speak a i mean when you're speaking a different language i feel like it's a different it's a different perspective and that kind of opens your mind to different ways of i mean since i mean since my brother and i were, were super young we were we were at kind of schools that had students from all over the world so we were able from a young age to mm, to open our minds to new cultures to new ways of seeing things to new ways of of dealing with certain situations so in that respect yeah both personally and professionally it's been amazing because yeah you can understand uh, or at least try to understand um, different cultures and I guess it does tie in back into keeping an open mind about you know whether it's it's uh, tailoring or or cutting or, or making or whatever but personally has been has been amazing because you can meet people from all over the, over the world from different backgrounds and you know there's sometimes some some, some points in common. You're like, okay, that's, that's, uh, that's interesting. And um, I mean, have, having this ability to be able to speak several languages has definitely opened doors, whether it's in Spain or in New York or, or wherever. Yeah.
1: So where do you see yourself, Alex, in the next couple of years here? <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, oh man.
1: I don't want to, well, I don't want to put you only in one country because it seems yeah. like maybe, maybe you'll be <laughs> in three, but
2: in September, October, I'll be moving. I'm leaving. I'm leaving Spain because I'm here for a, for a nine month grant. So I'll be ending, and then I have to go back to London to finish off my last um, my last term at LCF in January. So in June I'll I'll finally graduate, and then um, and then after I've I mean I've been trying to think about it, but it's uh, it's a bit difficult to see how things are gonna are moving with the situation as well. Definitely want to want to stay in in Europe a little bit a little bit longer, whether it's you know working with uh, with a tailor but also kind of exploring that creative side as well continuing with natural dyes and with with scents and all that I don't I really can't tell you anything concrete because I'll have to see in in June how things are um and then and then we'll see but short term plan yeah finish up in spain here do a bit of traveling a bit of relaxing and then go back to london to get that that degree
1: we'll we'll definitely have to talk we'll have to do another podcast talking about what you're doing right now because for You know people obviously we obviously didn't go into that uh but it's a a huge subject you're on a grant right now we're able to do research and produce dyes which is it's an extremely interesting subject that i think if i got you started on it we could talk for another hour
2: (laughs) (laughs) yeah 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 no i just got back from uh yeah from Vienna two days ago to to be able to work with different labs you know with 3d printing with new technologies to offer more sustainable solutions um, for the fashion industry, but yeah, like you said, it's that's for uh, for a whole other conversation. I think.
1: Well, all right. Well, Alex, I, again, thank you so much for taking the time to do this call with me. We're on opposite ends of the world, and so it's 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 a lot to get things organized and set up, and and I really appreciate you doing that.
2: Yeah. No. No. My pleasure. Yeah. Thanks for. Thanks for having me. It's, yeah, it's nice to be able to think and to, to hear about other people's opinions when it comes to tailoring as well. So um, I'm, I'm all for it.
0: Thank you for listening to Common Threads, produced by Artifacts. Make sure to visit our website at discoverartifacts.com and subscribe to the podcast so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating or even better if you'd simply share the show with a friend until next time.